Despite Python being overwhelmingly popular and reactions to it positive, there are major areas of computing where Python is not present, most notably on mobile and on the front-end side of the web. PyScript, a new project launched by Fabio Pliger from Anaconda, just might change that. It was made public and announced at PyCon just two weeks ago by Peter Wang and now has over 10,000 GitHub stars. But what is hype versus reality versus projected hopes and dreams? We're going to find out on this episode. Fabio is here to tell us all about his new project. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 367, recorded May 12th, 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Check them out at talkpython.fm slash foundershub to get early support for your startup. And it's brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training. Did you know we have one of the largest course libraries for Python courses? They're all available without a subscription. So check it out over at talkpython.fm. Just click on courses. Transcripts for this and all of our episodes are brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm assemblyai. Hey, before we jump into the interview with Fabio, creator of PyScript, I want to just tell you really quickly about this new YouTube video I made. After chatting with Fabio, but before this episode is released, I decided to play around with PyScript some more. It's really, really cool. Turns out, that one of the things there's not a great example for is how do I take and build a regular web application, something you might do with Vue.js or something like that, with PyScript using Python on the front end? And is it possible to actually avoid downloading the CPython runtime as WebAssembly that comes out of Pyodide and all those things and make your code sort of installed locally and run really fast and have actually a pretty great user experience? Well, it turns out the answer is yes. So I put together a 30-minute demo tutorial of that over on YouTube. If you want to dive in a little bit and see that in action, after you listen to this episode, be sure to jump over to YouTube. The link is at the bottom of the show notes in your podcast player on the episode page. Head on over to my personal YouTube channel and check out that video. I think you'll be pretty impressed. And it'll just make you want to do more stuff with PyScript, I'm sure. All right, let's chat with Fabio about PyScript. Fabio, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, you're welcome. And I'm excited to have you here because I am quite excited about the PyScript announcement that you have put so much work into. I'm very excited about the possibility of finding Python in other places than where it has really great strongholds, right? For as much as Python is the incredible growth of Python that Stack Overflow blogged about in 2017 and all the growth in different metrics, but by some metrics, first most popular language or second, depending. But for all of that, there's still very notable places where Python is not. And what you're working on has the possibility to unlock one or more of those places, 
or a whole content, different set of contingency of people, of data scientists, web developers, UI developers, maybe just for desktop even. So exciting. Yeah, I think it captured a lot of the things behind the project. Really happy to talk about all of those because, yeah, that's the reason we, we started it. So exciting. Yeah, and it's super exciting. There's been some attempts at this and we're going to get into, I want to sort of start our conversation about the history of what has come before and so on. Before we do though, let's just hear a bit about you. How'd you get into programming in Python? So I programming, I, I was been curious about a lot of things and probably doing too many things still today. <laughs> Early on, my I got into programming through friends who had computers and um, Commodore or things like that. We would hop on. Oh, I had a, and my dad at some point bought a, I don't even know the version. It was like a, similar to a Commodore, but it was in Brazil, a Gradient MSX or something. It was a local, like a, a national branded computer, but it allowed you to jump in and, and do basic stuff and programming. So I remember trying to play with my friends and try to code games. Uh, of course, we never get yeah. anything done, but <laughs> I always been passionate about computers and gaming and stuff like that. So into college, uh, to a computer science degree, training to become a game developer also never happened because I got... I think it's really interesting that so many people want to get into game development and then they kind of see the sort of grinding mode of that industry, right? It's like both fascinating and has this great pull, then you're like, but it's really hard on humans as well, right? Yes, it's a very hard industry and very competitive. My, my brother is, is an indie game developer and a lot of sleepless nights and working hard trying to get his thing out there and so yeah i think and through life i also just life happened i, I met my now wife and started to be a little more serious about you know gaming is great but i also need to make plans for <laughs> for the future so i ended up graduating and started to work for a company that's automation like machines automation in big industries mainly on pharmaceuticals and I worked there for a while and I was in the team that would develop high level applications for analytics. And we would usually do for big pharmaceutical and um, production lines. So providing all the charts and everything they need to oh, wow. say this production batch is valid for whatever FDA or whatever entity that is approving them. A lot of paperwork, a lot of things. Eventually, at some point, the, the my unit became a big part of the company. so. My, at the time, the CEO of the company asked, Hey, do you want a, a startup spin off of our company? Just focus on software. So I did that. That sounds like an, a pretty fun challenge. Yes. Like do, do a startup without quite the risk of actually being a startup. Yeah. Yes. Like uh, you're going to get paid. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. You're going to get paid. It also, I think the startup reality in, in Italy. I was still in Italy at the time. It's very different from here. It's really hard to, to have investors or, you know, to, to have to collect money. And basically you need to it it boils down to you investing on yourself in your own company and then trying to get profit within a number of years. Okay. It's gotta be way more bootstrap, self funded, you know, sort of thing, huh? Okay. Yeah. Do you think that's changed? Or is that still the same? I think it's changing. Yeah. The last 10 years, I think a lot changed uh, just from like the industry in general became way stronger in Europe as well. There's a different mindset. And I think culturally, South Europe has is this culture of the, a different way to see money and investments compared to 
to the US, for instance, or sure. But eventually, like this experience led me to the Python community early on. I actually got into Python not by myself. I heard about the language, I was curious, but someone within the company said, Oh, we, you know, the son of this customer is, is really big in the Python community. He could help us mm. see if it's a yeah. good fit for, for our use case. And, uh, it was around early 2000s, maybe 2002, one pretty early days of Python, really. Yes. And early, early days of, you know, scientific Python as well. You know, the whole, still the whole separation between numeray and numpy and numeric, all of that. So I started. I loved the language. I started using it in our tools. It was a funny time where it was definitely unknown as a language. And to get into big companies, it was a little tricky on the QA point of view. And But it was interesting. Eventually, I started to get more engaged with community, started to go to meetups in Italy and everything. And then I think it was around 2004 or five. I started to go to my first conferences in Europe loved the community, started to, how can I get involved? So at that point, later, late 2000s, I started the, with a bunch of friends in the Italian community, we started the Python Italia Association, which is basically nonprofit trying to push the language. And the main focus was organizing uh, the Python Italy conference. We started in 2007. Also that great, great community, a lot of work, but also paid back. I remember the first year we were like, let's do this thing. We we're very passionate and we end up in negative and we, all the members of the <laughs> oh, society. No. Yes. Uh, so just to say that big props to everyone in the community doing a lot of the community work because it's a lot of work and it often is not paid or can even be out of each one. Pocket. You might have to pay to do yeah. the work. Yes. <laughs> like yes. the opposite of getting paid. Yeah. Long story short, I started to be also more engaged with the uh, European community. And we, we organized EuroPython in 2011. So that in a, for three years in a row, and that got me into the EuroPython Society, uh, eventually became chairman of that, which basically means EuroPython Society is this European nonprofit that pretty much in line with the PSF tried in different ways, but tries to engage with the community, organize conferences, raise uh, some money to invest back uh, in the community through grants and things like this. And then I did that for a number of years. So eventually, well, back in the day when I was starting to learn Python, I also started to use a lot of the scientific libraries. And one of them was, was Chaco, which is a graphic, it was a graphic li uh, plotting library for, for Python that Peter Wang developed with, with Brian Vandeven, I think. He was in the show. P Peter Wang being the CEO of Anaconda. CEO, yes, today yeah, yeah. CEO of Anaconda. And we met for the first time in person at EuroPython in Florence. And he was like, okay, we know each other from in the internet for a while. Like, let's get more involved. That year, I was still trying to make my company be successful. It wasn't the right time. The following year, I met with Travis Oliphant, the other founder of Anaconda in Berlin. We just figure out, you know, like we're doing a lot of things that are similar. We're passionate about the same thing. So I eventually joined Anaconda in 2014. And, yeah. uh, and then eventually that following year, I moved to the US, joined the company full time. Fantastic. Well, it's quite the journey from yes. this is interesting language. Let me just start participating in some of the meetups. Meetups become conferences, conference become 
continent-wide conferences. And I think it's a pretty good takeaway for people who want to get more involved in the community. And like every one of those steps probably didn't feel massive other than maybe moving to the U.S. and and joining Anaconda. But, you know, they all probably seem like really iterative and sort of incremental. But at the same time, it's it builds up this it's a really cool place where you're yeah. maybe building amazing Python things in the browser at Anaconda. Right. Yeah. My experience has very much been what, you know, the a lot of people say, you come from the language, you stay for the community. That is mm-hmm. really uh, my experience. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, Anaconda allowed me to work on a lot of interesting things. Like, as you said, Python in the browser is the ultimate project. But when I joined, I started with being a core developer for Bokeh, which had a, had some of that. Bokeh is a visualization library for Python on the browser. And with your project you have now, you can still put Bokeh in the browser. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You can stay in the browser. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Even more in the browser than before, I guess. Yeah. All right, let's dive in. Now, before we dive in real quick, since you talked about gaming, want to be in game development and and your brother and so on, have you watched the documentary Power On, the story of Xbox? I haven't. No. This is a a documentary that came out. It's a four-hour show. You can watch it on YouTube. And it's cool. like the history of Xbox. Nice. And if you're just into like tech history documentaries, this thing is, is pretty interesting. But let's not talk about games. Let's talk about the birth and death of JavaScript. <laughs> Have you seen this presentation? Yes. Great. Oh my, great it is talk. so good, isn't it? <laughs> yes. One of my favorites, uh, funny talks, you know. The reason I bring this up is there's a lot of interesting building blocks that I suspect many people in the Python community are fully unaware of. Mm-hmm. There's been all these developments over in the JavaScript world. And Gary Bernhardt did this talk at PyCon 2014, the birth and death of JavaScript. And no, I'm not mispronouncing it. That's how it's done in the talk. It tells this hilarious story of the future of like weird human evolution and programming and JavaScript and how we don't do JavaScript, but everything's JavaScript. But what is the underlying theme is like a actual interesting technical history, how people started doing crazy stuff with JavaScript pre-WebAssembly. So there were compilers like Inscriptum that will compile C code to JavaScript. And then the JavaScript JITs have become so fast. So one of the examples was like Chrome running Firefox running something else, like maybe like an embedded Windows. I, I can't remember what it was, but just there were like layers and layers of JavaScript doing wild stuff that we wouldn't imagine otherwise, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of also one of the reasons with Peter, we, we said, okay, this is the right time to try this out because the browsers became so powerful. And so they are basically, a, if you see from a different perspective, they are mini, mini virtual machines. They have yes. their own file system. They have their own their isolation, networking, a lot of the things. You can really see that as, as a VM. Like the JVM, like the .NET CLR, and to some degree, like Python, right? Right. Right. The C Python on a regular machine. Yeah. You can run full operating systems on top of, of in, in the browser. And honestly, the explosion of interesting things in the last few years have been crazy and doesn't seem to, to decelerate at all. So the ma- level of maturity is, is kind of encouraging. It is. And the performance, while not native performance, is not that far off. At least some of the examples that Gary gave, it was like... 50%. Mm-hmm. You could run Doom at 50% speed when you compile it to the browser or something insane like that. Right. Yeah. It's good enough. But it's more than good enough. Yeah. I mean, because the alternative so often is, well, we're going to send a request over to the server and that might be native and fast, but it's also network latency and it's also a shared compute resource with a thousand other people. And here you are sitting on your MacBook Pro Max with 
16 cores, you know, and you're, you're just waiting. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually one aspect that a lot of people don't consider. There is, you know, there is the, the performance in terms of how fast it goes. But if you also, there are a few aspects that you also need to consider overall in the overall experience, you know, how long for the developer side of a point of view, how, how long before they can actually get in front of something usable or, you know, spinning up their environments and, and things like this. Then there's loading time versus execution time, also very different. But mm-hmm. from the, the eyes of the user, it kind of sums up. There are so many small niches or, or small verticals that we can work on in the whole uh, JavaScript or browser ecosystem that I think we can make a lot of improvements the next few years. Yeah. You think of grid computing and distributed computing, you know, part of the, the power of the cloud is that I could just go say, I need more. We have four servers, but a bunch of people showed up. So give me 20 servers mm-hmm. and scale my Kubernetes cluster across that for now. And four to 20 is amazing, but four to 100 million is really different. If we can push a lot of that compute to everybody's personal computers, even our iPhones are like unimaginably fast little devices, right? Like the whole M1 crazy transition is basically an iPhone chip with more voltage, you know, and better cooling, right? There's not much more to it than that. So finding ways to execute more of our code on the clients is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. We already see that even on the server side, projects like like Bask, uh, we're very popular pushing computing on nodes and, you know, the distributed architecture is very powerful and it's needed. We can have the possibility to make the same thing on the client side on the browser as well. Yeah. Yeah. Dask, for those out there who don't know, is a pandas-like, NumPy-like API that you can just say, but run it distributed across these machines on on the cluster automatically. Uh, you know, Matthew Rockland started Coiled and, you know, former Anaconda alumni, a lot of, a lot of tie-ins there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Cool. It's not the same thing in any, any way, but it, it is a way that really takes Python and gives it way more compute resources, potentially. So... Are there any particular sort of set the stage with this compile to C and stuff, but is there any other sort of building blocks in the history of how we got to what you all built in the JavaScript stack that you want to call out? Yes, definitely. I think one major thing that, you know, I want to give props as much as we can, the PyoDide project, which is, you know, a runtime for Python on the browser. And they've been extremely, like one of the reasons we could, work on PyScript was because it, it has a level of maturity and performance right now that is is really stable, right? And actually also been, they're great, a great community, uh, very supportive. So a big shout out to, to them, Hood and, and Roman specifically, the two main core developers. Um, and uh, the whole uh, work underneath that project as well, you know, like the, the progress of the Enscript and, 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 and WASM and WebAssembly, there's a huge community behind that. So actually, that's one of the principles that we try to, at the core of PyScript, is we don't want rain, to reinvent anything that we don't need. Uh, we want to be really yeah. add, additive to the ecosystem, glue things together, provide nice and easy APIs and high-level APIs so that we can lower the barrier, basically give more accessibility to the tools, to to the users, rather than reinventing something that's not needed. Yeah, so PyIODide. This project is a, a cool project. I interviewed 
Michael from uh, the project about this way, way back, a couple of years ago. But mm-hmm. yeah, it uses this mscripten and WebAssembly story to basically compile a port of CPython to run in WebAssembly in the browser, which is fantastic, right? I mean, that's, and to some degree, that's the building block that you all really needed, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I must mention also, yeah, Michael Dropbum and uh, Christian Himes, who has been mm. uh, also pushing a lot of the Python on WASM ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of good energy Absolutely. in the Python community to actually try to push that together, right? Yeah. And also Brett Cannon has right. been a big proponent of making that happen. I don't know how directly he involved with the day-to-day, like, let's make it compile, but I know he's been really pushing on that effort as well. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Starting a business is hard. By some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in just their first year. With that in mind, Microsoft for Startups set out to understand what startups need to be successful and to create a digital platform to help them overcome those challenges. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub was born. Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources to solve their startup challenges. The platform provides technology benefits, access to expert guidance and skilled resources, mentorship and networking connections, and much more. Unlike others in the industry, Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor-backed or third-party validated to participate. Founders Hub is truly open to all. So what do you get if you join them? You speed up your development with free access to GitHub and Microsoft Cloud Computing Resources and the ability to unlock more credits over time. To help your startup innovate, Founders Hub is partnering with innovative companies like OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development, to provide exclusive benefits and discounts. Through Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, becoming a founder is no longer about who you know. You'll have access to their mentorship network, giving you a pool of hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines and areas like idea validation, fundraising, management and coaching, sales and marketing, as well as specific technical stress points. You'll be able to book a one-on-one meeting with the mentors, many of whom are former founders themselves. Make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Founders Hub. To join the program, just visit talkpython.fm slash foundershub, all one word, the link's in your show notes. Thank you to Microsoft for supporting the show. Let's get to your announcement. I mean, I didn't go to PyCon this year, mostly just not ready to be in a room with people from around the world for mm-hmm. that long and I'll give the world a chance to try it out. Then I'll see how it goes and do it next year. But I missed everyone there. And, but I got a lot of messages. One was friends saying, why aren't you here? Why can't we have a beer together? Which, sorry, I really missed that. And then the other is, have you heard of PyScript? Oh my goodness, this was the announcement. Like this, if there's any big piece of news that came out from presentations and talks and announcements, like this is the one. So PyScript, people can guess, but what is it? Tell us about this. So PyScript is a framework that allows users to basically use HTML tags to define, to run Python code and define different components. Those can be related to executing code, but also providing, defining your your environments, what packages you want to install, etc., as well as some UI components that make things easier for users that are not familiar with HTML and, and CSS and all the styling of things. It's based on a Python runtime, which is Pyodide, 
that allows Python execution on the browser. And it has interoperability capabilities with JavaScript as well. So mm -hmm. you can use both Python libraries as well as JavaScript libraries in your code. Yeah, this is really great. And if, if people go to PyScript.net and scroll down, what is PyScript? It, it really calls all these out. Like if you're trying to present this to, to your boss or your team, you're like, this is something cool we should check out. Like they should definitely go to that list right there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That is, you know, the most immediate list of things. You know, there's a lot that we're working on and trying to provide as a tooling, but it's very, very new and very, you know, green, if, if I must say. So, yeah. So maybe don't totally build, release a product on it just yet? Yes, definitely. Very bad idea to release a product. This, ex, you know, expect APIs, uh, code and features to change. Actually, it's one of the things that we intentionally talked about before Python was, you know, should we have a versioning in, in place or something like this so that you know, you would expect any project to go that goes out there to have versions and everything. Yeah. We intentionally said, no, let's wait because it is, or let's put a version like do not use in production dot zero dot one. <laughs> zero dot zero dot zero dot negative one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mostly because, you know, with this, we want, we wanted to have something that is working, that is useful, that it can be used by uh, and hacked on by users that they want, but also give the vision that we have in mind and for people to see the possibilities. And that was the main focus for the project until PyCon. Right. Now, a lot of the following things are just the things that we want to achieve in order to enable a community. And this is an open source project. It's not an, an, an it started at Anaconda, but it's an open source project. We want to have a strong community, have contributors beyond uh, the, the Anaconda team and build it together. Yeah, that was one of my questions I wanted to ask you about is, it sounds like you all have a very strong vision of what this should be and where you want it to go. Yes. But from what you just said, it's, I was wondering, does that mean it's more source open than open source? And like, we're driving this way and we'll take PRs as long as it's on our, our roadmap? Or how open are you to people just jumping in and giving ideas and trying to build it up? Oh, yeah. Great question. We are very open. So it's worth also saying that Right now, we are at the stage where I don't think we've made it that easy for people to onboard and understand mm. the vision, understand the project, and actually be able to contribute. We're missing a lot of documentation. So one of the biggest pushes that we, we've been having after PyCon is to actually build up the documentation around those things so that anyone contributing have a easier time onboarding, understand the visions, and can give feedback based on those things. So as soon as we are also growing the team behind it, that so there's a lot of small things that we are preparing for the being a, a community that is on itself or itself organized and everything. So overall, I think that this is really a community project. Sure. Speaking of community, let me just pull up the GitHub page. So you're just shy of 10,000 stars. Yeah, crazy. That's, I don't know how old it is, but it's, how long has this repo been public? Not that long, right? We actually made it public uh, 10 minutes in during Peter's talk. Okay. So you're like half of Flask almost or half of uh, right. uh, closing in on fast API levels of numbers of stars. There's a lot of interest in this. Yes. Which is really exciting, but also is somehow overwhelming, right? Like I'll be very yeah. honest. Probably means there's a lot of expectations as well, right? Yes. Yes. And so we, we are aware of all of that. 
I think the main thing really for us is to, you know, we want to make sure that our users have patience because we are, we are trying to get to a, a stable <laughs> state or at least, you know. It's less than two weeks old. Come on. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's a baby. Yeah. I could, could talk about this for, for hours, but <laughs> at the same time, we want to make sure that it's usable and we want to collect users feedback to make it better. Actually, one thing that is very important is that it's, it, it got a lot of interest and a lot of excitement from the Python community and some of the web community as well. But I really want to make sure that everyone understands the picture, the full picture is what Peter said, like programming for the 99%. So beyond developers, how can we have a tool that students can learn very fast, get to learning coding very fast, or even non-developers? I would love my mom to write her recipe book with PyScript, yeah. right? <laughs> because it's that easy. Yeah. And thinking about the possibility of shipping that in your phone or your mobile users in developing countries that do not have access to computers and things like this, but they, they have a phone. Like this, what we also hope that is that the social impact of a tool like this could be very big. One can dream. Yeah. Yeah. One can dream for sure. So something maybe you could take inspiration from is the Swift playgrounds, mm -hmm. right? It seems like you can model that pretty well. And I feel like Swift was largely borrowing from Python in a lot of its ways. So it's time to borrow a little back from Swift. Yes. <laughs> For people who don't know, Swift playgrounds is like a little bit like a REPL, a little bit like Jupyter, but then on the right, you get kind of more iOS outputs, like little widgets and graphs and animations and whatever. But it seems like that could be a similar way that's sort of like Jupyter, but also a little more web playful. Right. Yes. And I would say we have no shame into like borrowing from others, right? I think that actually is how you can grow well. Like take the, the what's successful for from this community or this language, et cetera, and, and try to use that to make a better tool. Yeah. Because it's so early, because it's so fresh. Like one of the drawbacks, call it a drawback, one of the temporary limitations is People can't just jump in and build the next version of Gmail or whatever with it right now. Mm -hmm. But a benefit is so many people want to contribute to open source and they're like, I love Django. I'm going to contribute to that. Or I love Jupyter. I want to contribute to that. And then it's such a complex, highly leveraged, very polished system that like, well, contributing to that means you have like an insane level of understanding to make this little change that won't break everything else. Whereas this is pretty fresh, right? So if somebody wants to come along and build something like a Swift playground equivalent, yeah. the door is open for, and I'm not sure how much you want to accept that, but like the door is open for people to be, to grab ideas that are lower hanging fruit at the moment. Yeah. The idea is also to allow users to extend the, the tool itself and without having to change the tool, like with extensions and mm. things like this. I, like yeah. in my mind, I see that as a sort of Minecraft or pro programmers, right? Like you, mm -hmm. you can build your own blocks and then share with others and then they can share, they can you know, right. yeah. can check out my mod pack for this thing or whatever, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the idea is to make it, well, powerful, but also fun and hackable. Yeah, very cool. All right, now let's talk about, I, I know we talked to some of these things here, but let me just dive in a little bit on the, the bullet points to kind of do a wrap up summary before we move into the coding. So Python in the browser, this means it runs 100% in the browser through primarily WebAssembly, which is leveraging the PyoDide project, yeah? Right, that's right. Okay, and the WebAssembly stuff runs 
I think, even better than the JavaScript, <laughs> the C, C code compiled to JavaScript, because this is still more of a binary form and, and whatnot. That's yeah. pretty excellent. One of the things that really inspires me here, you spoke about this will allow us to do things on our phones and on lower end computers and do other things like that, where like now we have this possibility, just if you have a browser, you can kind of do it. I totally agree. And that's great. But what really gets me you know, excited about where this could go is progressive web apps mm-hmm. or something even like Electron JS, right? Where I build like a, a true desktop application like VS Code or Slack or whatever, but instead of having to write everything in JavaScript, you know, write it in Python, right? And just got to include the two meg or three meg WASM file with your, what is already a massive Chrome distribution. So no one would know anyway. Right. Anyway, so, all right. So yeah, yeah just what to you, mention, what you think about this, like this way to sort of, this is what I was hinting at at the beginning as well. Like, oh my gosh, we can have things in our doc that are like modern looking that are based on Python easily. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. Yes. And or taskbar uh, if you're a Windows person. <laughs> <laughs> right. The whole story about <laughs> the native apps and mobile and whatnot. Russell Keith McGee, maintainer of Beware, is he just joined Anaconda a few months ago. And Oh, he did? Okay, I didn't know that. Excellent. Yes, and he's been sort of looking at the project, collaborating, contributing with some stuff. He actually made up an example. One of the examples is is written in Tolga, which is the beer, Beware toolkit for UI design and stuff like this. And it's built in Tolga, but has a PyScript backend so that it can, it can render to PyScript di- directly, pretty much like it can build for iOS or Android or Mac. But yeah. we are another interesting story is the opposite, right? Like, can we have an app, an app, a PyScript app that then Toga can transform into an Electron-like app that you can just run on your mobile? Lots of do possibilities. It. Please do it, do it, do it. <laughs> that's so many people would be happy, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you're listening, that's for you. <laughs> yes, oh my goodness. Look, I think there are plenty of negatives about Electron apps, like why does my password manager need 400 megs of RAM to run? But we have such a limited set of options for desktop and mobile apps in Python that for now, that would be massively welcome to do something like this. And then there's always possibilities of, well, do you actually have to ship Chrome in some like massive runtime or could there be a smaller host, right? Like there's there's layers of improvement. All right, next one, Python ecosystem. When you think about the history, this is not the first or the second time that someone has done Python in the browser. Mm-hmm. Like if you're familiar with, are you familiar with Anvil? Yes. I had Meredith on from Anvil to talk about both Anvil one time and then I think it was Sculpt, which is what they use. And Anvil has both a back end and front end that's all Python and really interesting project. And they were using a JavaScript variant called Sculpt. And there's, I think, Brython is another one that you could choose. But one of the challenges of that is it's Python-like, right? It's not really the Python runtime. Do you maybe want to talk about like how that differs from the Python ecosystem, Python runtime that you all have? Right. That's exactly the difference, right? Like, And probably the PyDide folks would have a lot, lot more to say but the big difference is what you said. Like it's Python-like. For example, numerically, like JavaScript doesn't have integers. So your Python has to somehow fake integers if you're going to do things like that, right? Right. It's mimicking what you would expect with Python, but with the JavaScript. And it's not really a full-blown Python interpreter that you can also install mm-hmm. your packages. All, the whole Python ecosystem is not supported. And I think that's the big difference that was the differentiator for Pyodide 
And now yeah. that, you know, C Python actually compiles to to Wasm through MScript, and it's very exciting that we can... It's running the same VM or the same runtime that we get with CPython on our desktops, more or less. Like a cut-down limited version, but it's not like a weird transpile to JavaScript and then run it. Thing. Yes, correct. With a few caveats, right? I, that's okay. one of the things that I think is worth mentioning. It's the same CPython code, and it's the same thing you get in, in your local installation. A few things are different just because the browser as a VM, it, they work differently, right? Like file system is different on the browser. Sockets Threading, are probably. Threading, multiprocessing, pipes, and things like this, right? There are yeah. solutions for some of these that will require work and probably upstream with, with some of the parts of the standard libraries or the third-party packages, but they are just different. So we need to account for yeah. that. Sure. All right. So you can use, it says, many popular Python packages and stuff in the science, uh, scientific data stack. Question from the audience from Christopher Tyler says, my very limited understanding since you're using PyDide is that there's a limitation on the libraries you can use, meaning you can you import your own custom libraries? Generally, it's yes, right? But not universally, isn't it? Right. That's a great question. Let's talk first about the standard libraries and the third-party libraries that you have on PyPI, et cetera. So PyODide ships with the sender library plus a set of packages that they ported the C that they mainly most of these are they use C extensions and, and things like that. So they need to be compiled. And so the, the PyLite team took that work and, and took care of it. They're included in the distribution. There is a way for you to also build packages that depend on C extensions. They have a, a nice guide in their in their website that you can follow and, and they will help with that. In general, you should expect your Python packages to work if you pip install them, right? Yeah. The the caveat there is, do they have other dependencies that are C dependent on C extensions, and that will sure. you know cascade in what work, or do they rely on some of the things that I mentioned before, like multi thread, multi processing, and sockets and stuff? So in that case, the package may install, but you it will raise an error because multiprocessing is not supported or other things like this. What about simple stuff like async and await? Great question. It's not too, from a, like what it expects of the operating system is pretty low, but it's it's also pretty advanced. Right. That is more of, I think it's less of the packaging problem and more of a philosophical problem in terms of what you how you compare Python to JavaScript, for instance, right? JavaScript, even if it's synchronous as a language, it has... It built the idioms over time to always try to be asynchronous because of, yeah. for obvious reasons you don't want to you don't want to block your your browser or you know if you're doing a, something in your page and you block your Chrome on your phone. In that way, it seems like it should be a fantastic match for async and await. Yes, the way do not. Oh yeah. Yes, it is a fantastic match, and almost everything that you do that would be blocking in in, in JavaScript, you would async await. In Python, we are used to do everything blocking. And then when we, we want to do explicitly, we, we just we, we use asyncio or, or something different. So I think on that side of things, it's more of a how you develop your Python code rather than the, the language and the package. You might have to have a, a mental model that matches closer to like what JavaScript traditionally has. Yes. Potentially. Yeah. But okay. you know, we can use async await 
anytime, anywhere in your code in, in PyDite and PyScript. Oh, sweet. Okay, I should have started on this list here 40 minutes ago. <laughs> but next question from Roller is, how would I pip install something into PyScript? Which is, you know, a follow-up from what Chris asked in this like Python ecosystem integration. Clearly, pip install a thing is like got to be at least 30% why pop- Python is so popular. Right. Yeah, not commenting on the packaging for Python or JavaScript. And they all, we all know that most people don't have problems with them. <laughs> they all have idiosyncrasies, let's say. They're, they all got their weirdnesses. Right. So Pyodide itself allows you to use MicroPip, which is, is we will pip install your, your dependencies. So like an NPM-like thing where it creates like, instead of a node module, it creates a, something else? Yeah. It's like NPM, or it's more like pip really for Python. And uh, we'll go and... If it's a package provided by Pyodide itself, we will load that package for you. If it's mm-hmm. a package that is not available there, it will, it will check on IPI. And you can also specify the location of the package itself. So if, it, if you have your own repository, you, and you, but you have your URL to that points to a wheel file or a zip file, it will install from there. Yeah, and that wheel can be remote, just like you might have a CDN pointed Thing exactly. for JavaScript. Yes. Like, here's my wheel. Okay. Yeah. If it's so, Python, right? If it's C, if it, then all bets are off. If it's C, you should have done your, your duty and ported it to this WebAssembly. But the PyScript provides a layer on top of that where you, you can specify a tag called pyenv and it mm-hmm. accepts YAML format. And you can specify your dependencies there and both for packages and also has a, a, an extra key called paths where you can actually provide the link to your modules, custom modules that you want to. Effectively, like the working directory of, of your Python. So when you type import file name or directory slash file name, it, it kind of mirrors that to the browser, right? Yes, exactly that. If, you're, okay. if you know how Python works, it's basically adding those files to your syspath. So it, it, finds, uh, it finds them. Interesting. Yeah. Cool, cool. All right. Another one that's really important here is Python with JavaScript. So it's not like you're locked into this PyScript little box, right? What I think this is another thing that makes me very optimistic for the future is you can communicate back to other JavaScript, to JavaScript events, button clicks, to the DOM. So if here, here's another dream that I have is something like a Vue.js wrapper type of thing that I could do in Python and then do sort of model binding or attribute binding to the DOM and and have that sort of stuff happening. And this is really important to make it a first-class citizen that can work with all the stuff on the page, not like a canvas it was given or something. Yeah, yeah. So before I go into this, I want to plus one on what you said around reactive sort of uh, programming and components where they can be attributes that auto notify others elements that is definitely something that we would love to explore more and there's a lot of interest and on the python with javascript side of things i after the keynote and at pycon i saw a lot of videos coming up with like oh is is javascript that now that python can run on the browser and and things like this i think that narrative kind of looks at one side versus the other where we what we really want to encourage is actually the two together. There is a ton of really great libraries in, in JavaScript. And there is a level of maturity in JavaScript on things on the browser or UI creation or you know drawing on Canvas or on, on the page that we were nowhere close to the 1% in Python. And all of a sudden, you can use those tools in Python and vice versa. 
all of a sudden, JavaScript users could use NumPy or SciPy and other things to power their applications, right? Wow, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the benefit others, like outside of Python, people may be receiving, but yeah. Yeah. Now Python becomes a thing that so they could leverage, yeah. Exactly. I think if we start looking at this that way, then you can see how PyScript is a glue for building richer applications, depending, like independently if you're a JavaScript developer or a Python developer. And it, we are starting with Python. It makes a lot of sense. But if there is a Rust implementation on Wasm or R, I'm sure that the Python scientific community will love to to use R tools in their page with, sure. with Python stuff and maybe JavaScript as well, right? Yeah. I think it's building together kind of uh, movement that we want to push forward. Yeah. If I can look out and imagine a future, I don't know that there's a chance how much it would exist, but a really great future of like, well, we have WebAssembly. What if we really made WebAssembly more of a first-class citizen from a browser maker perspective? One of the things I think would be fantastic is if instead of getting the to the DOM through JavaScript and through the events through JavaScript, is if all of the browser makers said, here's a WebAssembly native thing that you can use to bind to the DOM and to the events and basically control it, you know, you could have Rust in the browser, Python in the browser, C Sharp in the browser, and they could all have this common API defined in maybe even a, a, an adapter type thing, like, well, in C Sharp it's classes and in Python it's, you know, Lambdas, I don't know, whatever, right? Like yeah. some variation that's more native to your world. But if there was some kind of interaction that we could build on, that would be even better, but we don't have that. So this integration with JavaScript and all of its modern features is fantastic. You still would want that, but it would be nice if there was a way, just put Python aside. Like if I'm doing WebAssembly stuff that I could stay in WebAssembly, stay native to interact more with the browser. Yeah. And honestly, the interaction between the WebAssembly part of it and JavaScript, it's very fast. You know, yeah, like, yeah. I want to highlight one thing that you said. A lot of the future and how can this improve is on the, you know, browser folks to... It's on the vendors. Yeah, it's, it's on, on the shoulders vendors. to do it. Yes, because yeah. like the, the huge bottleneck that we have right now is that you still, like when you load your things, you still need to compile them and, and run them in WebAssembly. So there's a, the loading time right now is very high and we're working on optimizing things and there's a lot of work, great work from the CPython folks and, and the Pylite folks to reduce the size of things that you're shipping by default. But ultimately, if you have a large scientific application, you still want to install NumPy and, and Bokeh and other stuff like this, and you will have a loading time. There is a loading time. And you know I think that might mean it doesn't make sense for the homepage of Reddit right. or like your marketing page that needs to load super fast to have to be implemented in this. But if you're writing something like Google Maps, Gmail, or like I go to those sites and then they spin and spin and spin for three seconds already. You know, like the first time you hit that, it, it does that. The second time it would just be cached, right? Exactly. All the stuff is off, the WebAssembly stuff is just off disk. And it, if your expectation is this page might take two seconds to load sometimes, you're good, I think, honestly. Yeah, all that to say like, this is the current state, right? I think there's a huge yeah. mar margin for improvement in the future and a lot of really great people are looking at it. So yeah. I'm, 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 okay. I agree. And I think the momentum is just building. So let's look at some code and some examples so we can make this concrete for people over audio, which is tricky, but let's do it anyway. So you've got the GitHub page, which has a bunch of examples. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do is kind of just pull up some of the examples here. And let me remind myself what they 
they're called. Let's do let's do this one first. Actually, I want to look at anti gravity. <laughs> so we all know the XKCD, and if you go to the REPL in Python, you type import anti gravity. Amazing stuff happens. And so here we have that equivalent in PyScript. But there's a couple of things that are really interesting about this. So let's pull this up. It says based on this thing, and you give it a second, and it says the the XKCD is. How are you flying? There's someone up there flying. They're like, Python, I just imported anti-gravity, right? It's great. But this is a variation. Do maybe describe what just happened on the screen here. And people right. can go to the, the demo and watch it, of course. This is, yeah. If they just check out the repo. This is a great, great example done by Philip Rudiger, his, his core contributor to, to PyScript, but also contributor to Panel, the Holoviews, Bokeh. He's done a lot of mm-hmm. great stuff. And what's happening here is we're loading the, the SVG first, and then there's another Python function that basically takes that the stickman and makes it float, but basically changing coordinates. Literally animates and flies up into the sky. Like right. it really takes off, not just it's up there, right? Yes, yes. And for anyone wanting to check them out, the examples are also available on pyscript.net slash examples, and you can run them. They are, okay. Directly there. Interesting. We'll link to that as well. So... I said this is interesting. It's interesting for several reasons. One, if I go and look at my task manager in Vivaldi, this is doing like 30% CPU constantly refreshing. I don't know what the frame rate is, but it it seems certainly passable in terms of there's cool animations going on mm-hmm. on this uh, rendering this canvas. And it looks good, right? It doesn't seem like, oh, this just doesn't going to work. It's like the person doesn't like glitch. Right, <laughs> up, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. The other one is it, it highlights many of the things that I think are pretty interesting here. Let me pull up the code for the example. And this maybe will give us a chance to talk through the programming model. So first of all, the first thing that's interesting is it has this pi E and V section. And you have people maybe have seen examples. And if you go to the home screen, you can actually, the, the pyscript.net, it says there's there's new new tag done through web components called pi-script instead of just script. And you can just write Python code directly in the browser. But you only want to do that for so long until you want to read it across a couple pages or whatever. So what's really cool here is the implementation of this is actually a custom Python file on the server, right? Yeah, exactly. We've been working on that for for some time the design of this because as you said there's a tension between allowing people to just drop things in the in the page and then have your python code there and it just works to also suggesting better patterns better patterns to do this like you definitely don't from a quality point of view, it's really hard to test anything that you just drop on the page. You know, a readability yeah. point of view. Or refactor it or anything, right? Right, right. But at the same time, we really want this to to be something that people can play with and hack with and then don't have too much to think to think about. Oh, I need a file. I need to name it Python. Yeah. And, you know, all of that. If there was a uh, NPM install step and then there was a compile step and then a pack step, like that, you would shave off like 75% of the people who just wanted to check it out. Right. So <laughs> we allow this pattern, but you could also say like the same code could be the same thing in PyEnv and then in PyScript, you could also have PyScript source equals in a Python file. So yes. you can run that from files as well. Right. Yeah. So just like with the regular script tagging, you say source and it can do a thing on startup, you know, like jQuery did its dollar doc, uh, dollar document.ready mm-hmm. hook right at the top all the time. Like you could do the equivalent of something like that. 
Okay, this is cool, but this is only part of it. Let me open up the other file, the antigravity.py. And this is the one, this is the one that made me really happy because when I look at this, it's, you know, how is that animation happening, right? What you do is you set a timer, do a callback, you know, where you are in JavaScript, and it goes click, 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 click. Let's see how often are you doing this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you remember the, the what the target frame rate was here? I don't remember. Yeah, anyway, there's some sort of time where you say run it this frequently. And basically what you do is you go over here and you say, this is Python. You say document, get element by ID. All right, first of all, awesome. With a ternary expression. And then you go and um, add through the DOM parser, you add the SVG in there. That's amazing. You do a replace child with some HTML stuff. And then you go and you hook the set interval. So set interval is the way to say, set a callback on a timer in JavaScript. And then you just call the Python function self.move, right? So there's a really cool interaction between JavaScript that's happening at a high, high frequency that shows do some stuff in Python, go over to JavaScript, go through the DOM, and then call back into Python when things that are interesting happen. Here is an interval, but it could be a button click or a drop-down select or whatever, right? Right, right. And we're doing some work right now at uh, providing a higher-level interface that would be more Pythonic to those JavaScript, you know, the usual things that you would always do in JavaScript, like selecting an element by ID or class or things like this. Like a CSS selector sort of model or something, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think... The goal is to provide the simplest and more expressive or, or Pythonic interface that we could to hide some of that complexity because at the end, a lot of Python users or new users will have to end up learning about JavaScript itself. <laughs> you're right. Like, I didn't want to learn JavaScript and here I am learning JavaScript. In I think what you're learning though is not, you're not learning JavaScript. What you're learning is the DOM API, the APIs that JavaScript often consumes. Right, correct. Right. You have to learn that the DOM has a get element by tag name mm-hmm. rather than I have to say, I can't say var anymore, var char they have to say let or else it'll complain you know what i mean like like you're not learning the language nuances but you are learning the apis that javascript people are very common yeah familiar with and it's a great point like another thing for instance the set interval could be replaced with full python and just say like from async io important sleep you know time sleep and then Mm. while just do a loop just do a loop and uh, it's async await there interesting Oh, no kidding. Okay. Like a while true. Exactly. Await sleep, then move. Okay. Yeah, this is really, really neat. I think this example is so simple. It's playful. And it's not just we put a graph on the page. Not to say that that's not important, but it's different than what we've seen before often. Yeah. I, honestly, I yeah. really props to, to Philip. Like in, I don't know, what, 50 lines of code or 40 lines of code? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. 45 for the entire implementation of a flying anti-gravity right skcd pretty pretty neat yeah and in python those are not 45 lines of javascript right cool okay uh audience question marcel says would it accept loading data from a file for processing like you know we're, we're pulling in modules but like what's the data story that's a really really great question i think the data story is yet to be told we're dedicating a lot of effort to that right now you can you can load data using uh, fetch basically and you can fetch data and then read just like normal files pydide provides a pyfetch wrapper around the javascript fetch but there is a lot that can be done and we are working on it to have better support and just how does the story for larger files look like can i do a panda read csv and give it a url or something like that that's a great question i'm not sure i don't know 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm really just wondering. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's one of the stories that it, I think is, is needs more development. Right now, you can pull files and, and read them with that method, but there's more work to be done there. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at a, another demo here. Let's see. Give me right. I have so good. Okay. This one's interesting too. This panel, I think it's panel stream is the one. And this is one of those that is going to take some time to load because under the hood, it's installing okay. panel and installing bokeh, I think, and other visualization libraries that are heavier. Right, right, right. So well, let's try it a second time, right? So if, uh, what do you guess? Seven or eight seconds maybe it took that first time. But if I hit it again, it says it downloaded 3.6 megs. And yeah. TikTok. You should have cached most of the things that you compiled. But also if you have, if you set your browser to not cache, it will not change anything. Yeah, well, I think the the challenge is that I'm using just Python-M HTTP server. So I'm not really using a a proper (laughs) proper server for this. Yeah. So that's not helping. I'm going to let that one load up while I'm pulling up another one here that I want to talk about. Yeah, is there one that you think we should highlight in particular? I mean, we've got the matplotlib one, which is pretty interesting over here that um, shows right. this. The D3 one is, is pretty interesting as well. The D3 one you said? Right. Okay. D3 has been a library that Python folks have, have always wanting to be using. That one was super fast. That one was two or three seconds. Right. Maybe because, less than two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And that should have basically the same loading time as JavaScript because we're not really importing much or installing new yeah. libraries. And once I hit your, your example server, then it's cached it, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, the second time you do, yes. So yeah. another one, the, the WebGL, right down. This one? the I- This also should load pretty fast and shows wrapping WebGL oh, yeah. directly. This one shows an example of dodecahedrons or something, a bunch sort of rotating and spinning around. It's a little bit like a 3D asteroid game with no spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> right. Something like that, I guess, maybe is a, a way to think of it. And if I go to, oh, and it also, as I move my mouse, it reacts to it. I didn't, I hadn't moved my mouse. So mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. If I open up my little uh, task manager thing, I don't know if it shares, but it says, basically, it shows you how hard it's working and it's 20% CPU for this 3D rendering interaction thing. That's, if you probably try to do this in pure Python and like Pygame, it might be more. Yeah. I'm not sure about like the performance and, and, and you know, like resources, but it should yeah, be yeah. pretty much, once you, you're using JavaScript things, they should be pretty much the same as JavaScript, pure right. JavaScript. Much like Python often just sort of orchestrates C code. Once you've loaded something into the C layer and you're kind of just instructing it through simple commands, it's probably not very different here. Exactly. Yes. All right. Cool. All right. So I strongly encourage people to go check out the demo code. It's just under the example folders in the GitHub repo, which we'll link to. Fabio, we're running low on time here. There's so much, so much more I want to talk to you about. <laughs> you drive. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just see a couple of examples or a couple of areas I want to talk about here. I just want to quickly touch on security. I think the security story is pretty simple, but I do have one question. So to some degree, people might go, oh my gosh, it's, it's compiled C in, in Java script in the browser, like, you know, what madness are people going to unleash on the world, right? This is like ActiveX or some dreaded com thing all over again. And really, WebAssembly also has the same sandbox security as JavaScript, right? Right. Actually, a lot of the issues that we've been getting around security boils down to that people like not being used, you know, to seeing the browser as a, a VM. So, oh, 
if I type OS list there and stuff like this, I cannot have access to the file system. Well, you're having access to an ephemeris file system in the browser here and not your local file system. That is a very right. important, okay. important aspect. One thing that would make me super happy is if we had some beautiful Python API to the local data side of things. So inside the browser in JavaScript, you get access to what's it called local DB and there's like a there's different levels. There's like a file sort of file per site file storage thing that's yeah. tied to your user. And then there's like an embedded SQLite like thing. I mean, if you had something like SQL model or some other proper ORM that would let you connect <laughs> to query that, I suspect that it could probably be built pretty easily with a interoperability layer to, right. to figure out just how to, to translate that over to JavaScript. But do is it, what do you think? You know yeah. more than I do. No, th- there are lots of, possibilities and scenarios of, you know, using what the browser provides you, like local storage or small instances of databases and stuff like that. So that is almost shipped and default with all the browsers. There are interesting projects, well, at least one that I've I've seen, like Google project where from Google, from the Chrome team, that is experimenting with scenarios where you can actually allow apps to access your file system or other resources, native resources, right? Like, and it's, it goes through a, a process of approval, but you can mount directories and use them from your browser as a local mount. And those are also very interesting scenarios that could up, open up a lot of different ways of interacting with PyScript. Maybe it would mean like sure. you can actually develop your PyScript app directly from your local machine and then serve it on the browser in real time or your app could write files or do your models or computation on the browser and then write results, your local files. There's a lot that can be explored. Yeah, very exciting. Okay, my uh, security question though, outside of the, it's all the sandbox, let's not stress about it. We already have had WebAssembly for a long time. Is this PyEMV section here where you can say, uh, go find this file, right? And I'm thinking of, you know, my website, which has a statics files, static files folder section where I might put this because that needs to be served up as effectively a static file to the front end. Mm-hmm. But I've also got my app.py, my various views and settings.json. And like, if I put too many dot dot slashes there, am I going to be able to get to other stuff or is it okay? Suppose this folder, this file lives in like static slash antigravity.html. Mm-hmm. But the rest of my app is like one directory up from, oh, yeah. from that. Like, could I say my path to my module is dot dot slash app dot pi and then maybe read like some right. source code with like a token that I put in there that I shouldn't have put in there, but then now it's public. Yeah, relative paths should work just fine. There's also, I think with PyScript, the distinction between development time and deployment time or bundling time is a little more highlighted. Like as a developer, I'd love to have those relative paths and and explore and have full access to the a lot of libraries. But when I deploy, like I bundle my application, one of the things that we are very interested in to developing more is we should bundle that as one thing and paths should be absolute. So there's no issues with, with what you're saying. We could bundle the interpreter and your dependencies so that we can optimize size, remove dependencies that you're not using. So, you know, the loading time is smaller basically three shake like a lot of JavaScript libraries do. Yeah. So there are definitely patterns to explore in that scenario too. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, you, you definitely don't want to go dot dot slash app because <laughs> because somebody could then inject that. But yeah, you know if yeah, it's interesting. I'll I'll, I'll be cool to see what you all do there. But definitely, that's the only thing that's come to mind. Like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen there. Oh, so but if you do dot dot app, you're still like it's basically on you to define what you're actually serving as your static file server. If it's not accessible as a static file already, this mm-hmm. will just four oh four. Yeah. Okay. Then right. Yeah. Then then flask pyramid friends have it covered yeah Got yeah it. exactly now i see where it's so it's just you're like it's not our responsibility but you shouldn't be allowing you know slash static slash dot dot slash app dot pi being served anyway right right okay cool the other thing is one of the things that steve dower talked about recently is that they started built enable the real the full c python to being built within mscripten mm-hmm. web assembly targets is this of interest to you all? Does this, Very does much. this supersede PyIodide's version in some way? Is this what PyIodide's version actually is? The PyIodide team and the CPython on WASM team are, are collaborating on making the two, making PyIodide basically use that as a baseline Python interpreter. Okay. That actually would be very helpful to the PyIodide team as well. They would have way less things to maintain. They can just delegate to improvements and optimizations that the cpython core team is are, are they're doing and can focus on the additional features of pyodide so that actually is we had a a few they're building in the web assembly version because it didn't exist that's probably not what they want to, to do right exactly yes yes yeah yeah okay their real innovation i think in addition to just getting the web assembly thing working is like how do you bring these important c mixed C libraries in like NumPy and such to the browser that otherwise wouldn't just drop in as, you know, Python stuff running on top of the interpreter, right? That seems to be the the most important thing that they're, they brought to the table. Right. Not discounting that like there was not a WebAssembly version and they made that also happen, right? Like that's also super important. But well, yeah, I guess they're that what makes them more distinct of all the other attempts is that they're really focused on making sure the data science libraries work in this situation. Yes, that, I think that is one of the main things that made PyDive successful because a lot of times you would support just the language itself, and then when you want to support more complex use cases like use depend, uh, C dependencies, you are too far in the process of your implementation, and then you're like, oh. And now we have to rewrite half of the code to refactor to account for yeah. a lot of the complexities. Yeah, we got to backfill it so we have support for all these. Like, how are we going to write our own NumPy now or something? Yeah, Right, yeah. And C extensions are always the place where most projects have a hard time, right? Like historically, well, the different implementations of Python in yeah. .NET or PyPy or others. <laughs> yeah. C-, C extensions has always been like the trouble. Yeah. It definitely is. It's also tricky for the gill. It's also tricky for thinking about reference counting versus other collection uh, cleanup type. Yeah, it's an important boundary to be aware of, but it's yeah. also really been a lot. All right, final final thing. Let's just wrap this up with um, what's next, where you're going. So I think I hinted at a lot of those. You know, I think the main thing for us in the immediate future is really to work with the community and build up more of that of that side of things. And then also work on documentation to put out also the vision and what's next. There are a bunch of things that are really interesting that we will be looking at, uh, right? Like a reactive layer for components to interact with each other and notify each other. The story around data and uh, how does working with data look like and 
in PyScript. A lot of development around the possibilities of using PyScript in a peer-to-peer or Web3 sort of scenario, right? What can we make to support applications talking to each other directly or, you know, using a mode where you work offline and online and you can, you know, make the experience better. Right. Like a little bit of a progressive web app type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'd be super excited to see that come along. Yeah. Honestly, one of the difficulties with this project is that it breaks so many patterns that we are used to, you know, both like, oh, I'm running my thing on my machine or or in a server or I'm doing a web, it means, okay, it means that I always have a server and a client side. They have the network in between. Now we're shifting the paradigms and a lot of things are new so we can explore, right? The other thing that we're looking at, well, it's better support for the optimization, loading times, all of those things. How can you, can you hold state of your application? So basically, as it's 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 running, it's set there. Or if you just have a, a notebook-like sort of workflow, how can you save the state of your PyScript app and share with others? And they can start from the same point you were. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are all great things to be working towards. Is this tying in any way to Jupyter Lite? I mean, it's got similar goals. I'm not sure if it has any similar foundations or anything. Maybe. I, I'm very familiar with the Jupyter... Folks, I, we work like I work together with many of the core developers. And historically, uh, JupyterLite is a great project that basically implements the, the Jupyter notebooks using Pyodide as a runtime or, or a, a shell. Yeah, so it's not that far out of being maybe in a sim- similar space, but right. Yeah, it's, okay. it's similar in that that sense that it it ties right into the Jupyter experience. So it has its it's locked into the notebook flow and authoring notebooks and stuff like that. Where PyScript is more has a larger scope and it's really to to author applications and sure. a little yeah. different. Okay. Very interesting. All right. Well, congratulations. That seems like a pretty promising project. And I know there's a lot of interest in it. Let me close it out with a, a comment from the audience. Andre Muller said, uh, I tried Jinja the Jinja wheel just straight up with PyScript and it works straight away, like no changes. So uh, that's, that's kind of meta actually. That's really Jinja cool. within PyScript within HTML. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let me ask you the final two questions before we get out of here. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor are you doing using these days? I'm usually a mix between VS Code or PyCharm. All right, cool. Yeah, good. both good. And notable... PyPI package or, you know, some other kind of, maybe it doesn't come quite off PyPI, maybe it comes off a of CDN these days. PyScript, obviously. What do you want to give a shout out to? Gave a, a lot of shout outs to PyDide. Once again, it's a, it's a great project. I think uh, the, um, I use notebooks and the, the whole Jupyter ecosystem a lot as well. The whole scientific stack and a lot of the things that uh, are around, you know, the, the many interesting projects like, you know, NumPy, Pandas, Dask, Bokeh, Numba, a lot of that ecosystem is is really in my day-to-day kind of workflow. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, cool. All right. Well, once again, congratulations on all the interest and excitement. It's it's really taken off in the last couple of weeks. So thanks for coming on the show and talking about it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was I had a great time chatting about it. Yeah, you bet. And final call to action, people want to get started. What do they do? Great question. Go to pyscript.net check the website. We have links to the repo 
and to the you have very uh, interesting install install steps here <laughs> right and it says ah no you don't install anything <laughs> yes uh, we hope people would click and actually see the easter easter egg which is good and yeah you know we want to really want to be an inclusive community so if you have questions or have you want to report bugs or just ask where you can help just reach out either on on twitter or reach out on the repo open bugs there we we're in the next you should expect more documentation on community engagement, having a, a discussions group where people can actually ask questions more easily. We're evaluating starting bi-weekly or something like that community call where we just are there for the community to ask questions live on a Zoom or something like this. So be patient. We're getting there to support our community and, and allow people to actually contribute back. Well, well, very exciting. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Starting a business is hard. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources and connections to solve startup challenges. Apply for free today at talkpython.fm slash founders hub. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at Talk Python. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.